What's up, guys? Welcome back to the MMA meeting. Let's talk with the Weasel Podcast, where we talk all things MMA. This is going to be available on all platforms, and if you want any extra podcast episodes, just make sure to check out the Patreon or join as a member of the channel. Next extra episode is going to come out probably by tomorrow. After going through the craziness about the Joel Schilling situation, and there seems to be a bit more update on that. So it turns out that the man that Joel Schilling knocked out looks to be pressing charges after finding out who he was. And this is exactly what I've been saying. Fighters are fighters, yes, but they're also celebrities. They also have a name. They have a following. And if you go into a fight, let's say you're a professional fighter. You knock somebody out, and they find out that you are some sort of celebrity. They are going to take this route, and now you're going to be in the same situation as Joel Schilling. Don't fight, not only for those kind of consequences, but if you're not forced into this, if you're going to defuse a situation or just walked away, it saves you headaches. You don't need to stroke your ego. You fight for money. You don't fight for free. And if you knock this guy out, it you get nothing out of that. You get nothing out of that. You just knocked out some scrub in a, in a bar. Now, the guy was obnoxious, and not just the way he was acting, the way he looked to him. I mean, you see that loose-fitted dress shirt and the striped tie going with it? Definitely the kind of guy that gets kicked out of bars. And he did pump fake. He tried to flex on Joel Schilling, this guy that towers over him, of all things. I know the guy was intoxicated, but you got to have control, especially when you're in kind of a place like this and a guy like Joel Schilling's around, right? Because you don't want to cause any problems with someone like that. But on Joel Schilling's side, man, just walk away. You get nothing out of this. He didn't even hurt you. And Schilling came out and said that he felt threatened for his life. I think we all know why he said that. But man, that is going to be very hard to believe, in my opinion. And now Schilling is sharing, like, private messages that he's getting from random people saying that they know this guy. He's an abuser. He's this and that. I don't know if those are real DMs. I don't know if he's been taking self-awareness classes with Fabia. But man, it's not really going to help him that much. He walked up to this guy after pushing him aside a little bit. The guy just said something to Joe. Joe didn't need to walk up to him. He could have just laughed at him and just walked away. Kind of like what Michael Bisping did. And Michael Bisping, actually, let's give him some credit. He took a punch to the face by some random guy and didn't do anything about it. He said the punch was so weak that he just laughed. It was so pathetic. There was no reason for Bisping to retaliate. Take that approach. Because at this point now, Joel Schilling's probably wishing he did what Michael Bisping did. That situation could have been easily avoided for Joel Schilling, man. No point in doing something like that. And even his Instagram story after that, he was saying that he's not the kind of guy who calms everything down. He said he's there for the show. And that just goes against him. It just looks like he was stroking his ego for the most part. Don't fight unless you really have to defend yourself or defend someone else. Especially when you can easily avoid it. And you're up against some scrub in a bar. I mean, Joe knew what he could do to this guy. There's no point in even going further. And with that update, we have a little bit more of an update with the Dana White and Francis Ngannou situation going on. So, as we all know, there's going to be an interim heavyweight title on the line between Surreal Gan and Derek Lewis. Francis Ngannou is going to be waiting out, but we still need to see what's going to happen with Ngannou. Who he's going to fight next? He's going to wait for the interim champion or he's going to fight someone in the meantime? Especially when money's involved, that can absolutely happen. It happened with Michael Bisping when he was supposed to fight the interim champion, Robert Whitaker, but instead he fought GSP in a money fight and Whitaker defended his interim belt. That's a very likely thing to happen here as well for Ngannou. But... It looks like Dana does not like Ngannou's agent. They went at each other a little bit, and it shows some uh, tactics that Dana used here, at least according to the agent. This is only according to the agent. I don't know how much this is true, but Erhawani also tweeted out and reinforced what this agent said. So according to Dana, he told Francis Ngannou that if he was going to postpone his return, because they wanted to have in August, that they are going to do this interim belt. He actually warned Ngannou and warned the manager about it. Hence why Dana went after the agent when the agent said that he was shocked by this decision. But what the agent, I guess, was really shocked about in his reply here was he was shocked at the decision to go with the interim belt when Francis asked for another month before returning. So Francis Ngannou wanted to return in September, not August. That's a month later. And he also said that Dana knew 
that Francis Ghana wanted to return in September. And this seemed to be a while ago because he said that Daniel quote-unquote made threats after less than three months after he was aware that Francis wanted to fight in September. So this was months ago, possibly a little bit after the Stipe win. And Irohawani said that the organization has been using interim threats or stripping threats a lot as of recently and is getting their champions to fight more frequently, I guess. And that is very aggressive. It's very cutthroat as a business. But again... Who do you blame for all this? You got to blame the fighters because they're the ones that don't band together, unionize, and stop all this from happening to them because the, the organization is going to do what they can do. If they are allowed to do this, of course they're going to do it. When there's no pushback, it just makes it all the more easier. Now they can have these interim championship fights and stuff like that. If Cyril Gunn and Derek Lewis, for an example, let's say they said, no, I'm not going to fight for interim belt. Francis deserves what he's asking for. If they stuck it with Francis, they wouldn't have been able to do this. They would actually have to agree with Francis's wishes of fighting in September. But the fact that all the fighters are so selfish in the sport, they all want the belt, they all want money, especially Derek Lewis. It's not the first time where he agreed to take another fighter's spot. And Cyril Gunn's a little bit younger. Of course, he's going to want to fight for a championship. He's not that experienced in the game yet and hasn't dealt with the negotiations like champions have. Once he gets there, then he's going to realize a little bit more of how much more business savvy you have to be in this sport. But that's the number one thing here. Most of the fighters, they have to like get a business degree or something because, man, it could be complicated. So fighters got to unionize or they're just allowing this to happen to themselves. But other than that, man, not much else going on. We just got the big pay-per-view coming up. This weekend, there are no big fights. But honestly, the pay-per-view card doesn't look that bad at all. UFC 264 has some decent fights, especially on the prelims. So the early prelims are nothing crazy. Nothing really stands out. The prelims supposedly only have three fights. I hope they rearrange that. But you do have Ryan Hall versus Taporia. That's a very good fight. Nico Price versus Michelle Pajera. That's probably going to be the craziness of the night. Two absolute madmen. Both have tremendous amount of power. Nico Price is an absolute dog. Where Michelle Pajera is an athletic specimen. Carlos Condit's on the card. Always fun to watch him. Sean O'Malley's still on the card. He has his replacement. But... He should be able to win that fight fairly quickly. I do like that they're going a little bit slow with him because they did test him with Marlon Vera. It didn't go that well for him. So they're going a little bit slower for their product, right? If you look at it, the business aspect, Sean O'Malley is like their future brewing product for the audience. They don't want him to get out there and get wasted. So a little bit slow. I do like this fight for him. But after this fight, they got to test him again because they cannot do to him what Bellator did to Michael Page. Michael Page was supposed to be Bellator's big breakthrough star, but they had him fighting taxi drivers for years. And that only gets the fighter conditioned to fight that kind of competition, right? His eighth fight in Bellator is finally, I guess, someone who's kind of decent, kind of okay in David Rickles. He fought Paul Daly after that, but Paul Daly's very old at that point. And then he finally fought the cream of the crop, Douglas Lima, and got bulldozed. He had a good moment in there, but ultimately got knocked out fairly quickly. Hopefully that's not Sean O'Malley. Hopefully they test him a little bit more after this. They spice up his competition after this fight. Arena Aldana's on the card. Taito Vasa versus Greg Hardy is a very interesting fight. Not the most technical, but it is interesting to see if Greg Hardy and Taito Vasa are somewhere around the same level and give us an entertaining fight. And then the last two fights are obviously the most technical, the most skilled, the fights that we're all looking forward to, right? Gilbert Burns versus Stephen Thompson. That can headline any kind of fight night. Dustin Poirier versus Conor McGregor. An excellent fight as well. Almost 50-50 down the middle. Those are the kind of fights we are just hungry for, man. We love to see these competitive back-and-forth fights that can go either way. Gilbert Burns has a very unique 
skill set in this welterweight division. He's probably the most well-rounded fighter. He can grapple. He can wrestle. He can kickbox. He can box. He can fight in the clinch. He can do it all, man. And that's not something that Stephen Thompson necessarily fights up against that much. The last guy that Stephen Thompson fought that would try to take him to the ground as well as strike with him was, of course, Tyron Woodley. And those fights were very, very close. And before that was Rory McDonald, right? It's been a few years since Stephen Thompson had to fight someone who would attack him in different levels. And Gilbert Burns is extremely fast with one-punch knockout power. He just doesn't have the greatest chin. And that is going to be a little bit alarming for him because you could go vice versa. He's never fought anything like Stephen Thompson before. The only way you can prepare yourself to fight Wonderboy is by fighting him. Or he's sparring beforehand. Wonderboy's a nice guy. He might just offer that for you. But I do see Gilbert Burns have a tough time of finding the target, especially coming from a distance, because Thompson's not going to let him get in close. Burns is an orthodox fighter. And Stephen Thompson, if he sticks in the southpaw, that sidekick is going to keep Burns away at all times. And Burns, even though he's quick, his punching form is a little bit strange. He seems a bit stiff when he throws punches at times. And that's going to be very tough for him to get in close. He's going to need that snappy motion to really get inside of Wonderboy. Or at least threaten him from that kind of distance. Because Wonderboy has the height advantage, he has the reach advantage. He's very fast as well. And what Burns brings to the table in the striking game, the Muay Thai style that he displays, is something that Wonderboy is always trained up against and always fought up against. On the feet, Burns is not really going to show anything different that Wonderboy has never seen before. Burns needs to focus on wrestling more than striking in this one. The striking game has to be more of a support for his wrestling. His punches and kicks need to set up his takedowns. Do not engage Wonderboy in a long-range striking match because if he does attempt to strike with him at all, that's what it is going to be. Wonderboy is going to be able to control where the strikes are going to come from. And one big crack from Wonderboy, whether it be a foot or a fist, Burns might go down with one single strike. And of course, the Dustin Poirier Conor McGregor fight. I mean, this fight can go either way. And the big X factor is how is Conor going to show up? We're going to see motivated Conor, angry Conor, not nice guy anymore. He's going to have hair. Like, what's the difference in this Conor McGregor? Is he? The thing is, if he comes out there with a boxing stance yet again, he's going to lose this fight due to leg kicks and takedowns. Conor showed to be the better boxer. He showed to be more precise, a little bit more powerful, and honestly, just much faster. The Dustin Poirier. He's much faster in the trigger. Poirier had to anticipate the shots before he was able to counter them. He needed to see Connor come in in order to counter, and he did that fairly well. With the same boxy stance, nothing much is going to be different because Connor's pretty much fought the same way, or at least he has attacked the same in every single fight. He's very left handed heavy and torques his body greatly into that left hand, and he will find that right uppercut off of it or prior to the left. It's not one dimensional, but it's a rather simplistic approach that Connor has in his fights, but also it's extremely efficient. One wrong turn, whether you think it's a right hand, whether you think it's a left hand, and the fight could be over from there. But Connor doesn't have the same kind of power in lightweight. He was much more powerful in featherweight fighting the smaller guys. Here at lightweight, man, he's cracked multiple people and they have not gone away with one single blow, whether it be Eddie Alvarez, whether it be Dustin Pori, whether it be Habib. He's cracked these guys with some of his hardest punches, and they just don't go away from one single punch like they did back in featherweight. Connor's still relatively inexperienced at lightweight at the highest level. He needs to rethink his strategy of knocking these guys out with one punch because it's not working. It hasn't been working at all ever since he moved up. He's not a big guy. He's not the most powerful guy. He's a sharp puncher. He's fast, but he really needs to think about, okay, maybe I'm not going to get this guy out with one punch like I used to when I fought 145. Connor needs to rethink his strategy here and start to be a little bit more technical and Think, okay, I'm going to tag this guy multiple times throughout five rounds. If this goes to a decision, that's just what it's going to be. Kind of the same mentality he had against Nate Diaz in the second fight. That's the same mentality he's going to have to have in every single fight going forward. Because Dustin Poirier honestly doesn't have the best chin. It's not bad at all, but it's definitely not the best. It's not Justin Gaethje's chin or Tony Ferguson's chin or 
half of those Angels chin. Like, if he can't knock out a guy like Dustin Poirier, who probably has an around an average chin, but great amount of heart, he's not going to knock out most of these guys with one punch. But man, he needs to get that bouncing movement. He needs to get the kicks in there. And that's very important. I don't see a lot of people talking about that. The kicks, as well as the movement, are the great combination that he needs to bring back into this fight. Not just movement. He needs kicks as well. He needs a side kick to the knee. He needs leg kicks of his own. His kicks are extremely powerful. He needs round kicks to the head, side kicks to the body, spinning kicks as Pori moves away from his left as a way of intercepting that angle and constantly threatening with that so Dustin Pori sits on the center line a little bit more and from there, Connor could pick his shots down the center line with side kicks, left straights, right uppercuts, right jabs, a little bit of all of that. And if he does that, if he comes out there with the movement and the kicks, I can absolutely see him winning this fight. And in fact, I might lean to his side just a little bit. But Dustin Poirier, honestly, he has a lot to show here too. I mean, he didn't wrestle that much in the second fight. He shot in a couple takedowns. One of them was stuffed very easily, but one of them got through with that shift. The leg kicks are still going to have to be used because even if Connor's bouncing around, the leg kicks are still going to be extremely effective. I I think Connor's going to try to counter those immediately. I don't think he's going to let him just slip by and feel out the leg kicks. I think once the leg kicks start, Connor's going to start retaliating immediately with power. And we're just going to see how he's going to defend them. There's multiple ways you can do it, multiple ways Connor can counter those. But that's all going to depend on the way Connor approaches the fight. Dustin Poirier showed to have a really good counter on that left hand. Hopefully that comes back. He's going to watch out for that jab and the right uppercut. Those seem to be the best punches that we're getting through. And I hope Dustin is preparing to fight a Connor who's moving around and throwing a lot more kicks. Because if he's expecting the same Connor from the rematch and Connor shows up different, then I'll be more confident in Connor winning this fight. But with all that, man, let's go right to the questions. And we are going to start with the Wild Files. What is the single hardest strike that has been landed in each division? This is an interesting question, man. There's been so many knockouts throughout the years. But let me try to remember off the top of my head here. So heavyweight, we're not talking about UFC only. We're talking about all MMA. Of course, you got Francis Ngannou's legendary uppercut on Alistair Overeem. But what I want to also put into that, and it might actually be more powerful, go back to Pride. Merkel Krokop head kicks Vanderlei Silva. That might have been the single hardest strike that landed in the heavyweight division's history. The way it folded Vanderlei's neck, man, that was a scary sight. The light heavyweight division's hardest strike had to have been Alexander Rakic head kicking Jimmy Manua. To this day, I can still hear that thundering crack. I don't care who you are, if Rakic lands that kick on you by stepping far out for a huge rotation and huge amount of leverage with the hips, I don't even think Francis Agano would take that shot. But a kick is different than a punch, right? So most of the time, kicks are going to be more powerful than a punch. I'll say the hardest punch in the light heavyweight division off the top of my head was probably Jan Blahovic landing that overhand right on Corey Anderson. Jan Blahovic had good timing on that right hand, but man, did he sit on it as hard as he could. The middleweight division, of course. The iconic Dan Henderson knockout over Michael Bisping. Two of those strikes could have been considered the hardest strike ever landed in the middleweight division because the overhand right as Bisping sidesteps into it was definitely one of the hardest strikes ever land. I mean, he went out cold before even hitting the ground, but when he did hit the ground, we got to talk about that flying forearm to the neck. That might have been even more damaging than the overhand. And let's go back to memory lane of TRT Vitor Belfort. What he did to Dan Henderson in one single fight, two of some of the hardest strikes I've ever seen in the middleweight division. The uppercut that lifted Dan Henderson off of his feet. And mind you, this is Dan Henderson who has never been knocked out before. Dan Henderson's chin cracked when he fought TRT Vitor before nobody was ever able to hurt him the way Vitor did. So an uppercut that lifted him off his feet and dropped him, and then a head kick as Dan Henderson leaned into it. Vicious shots. 
by Vitor, man. And now we go to the welterweight division. There has been a few here. The hardest single strike in the welterweight division's history was, of course, Michael Venom Page landing that flying knee on Cyborg Santos. Crack the guy's skull. I mean, what can you really say about that? That might have been the hardest strike to ever land. He literally broke the guy's head with a flying knee. And there has been another flying knee. Of course, Jorge Masvidal's five-second flying knee against Ben Askren as Askren leaned into it as well. Those are definitely the two hardest strikes of the welterweight division and possibly like top five hardest strikes of all time regardless of weight classes. But those are both flying knees. We'll give something else here. Kamar Usman's knockout against Masvidal. Masvidal has an insane chin, shaped and crafted out of granite. And Kamar Usman blasted it like no one else has ever done before. With a full cock, strode in, right hand that made it rain with Jorge Sweat in the octagon. Definitely the hardest punch of the welterweight division. The lightweight division, I mean, how could we go further than Edson Barboza's legendary wheel kick knockout against Terry Adam. And sadly, Terry Adam was never the same after this. Not just as a fighter, it seemed like just personality-wise that brain damage must have did something to the guy because he was not behaving the same after that. And I also have to say, Michael Chandler's big... Big knockout over Patricky Pitbull. Just a full flush falcon punch to the face, man. Fully cocked, right overhand to the jaw by the most powerful man in the lightweight division. Probably of all time in the lightweight division. But we go to featherweight here. Featherweight has some interesting big knockouts. WEC Josie Aldo, double flying knee on Cub Swanson, eight seconds into the fight. Probably the hardest strike Josie Aldo's ever landed and might even be the single hardest strike. We got Josh Emmett's huge right overhand against Michael Johnson. Michael Johnson is known to have an insane chin, but Emmett is extremely explosive, very fast and powerful. Made Johnson go stiff. And of course, I also have to go with Mr. When I Hit Guys, They Don't Move. Jeremy Stevens high kick knockout against Roni Jason. Roni actually dove into the head kick and was out before he even hit the canvas. Bantamweight division, the hardest strike was, of course, Corey Sand against Flying Knee against Frankie Edgar. You also have Cody Garbrandt's big right hand against Hafal Sunsau. Sunsau was known to have a very good chin, man, and it get blasted the way he did. I mean, he literally dragged the Sunsau's body with his fist, threw him aside with the punch, and just walked away. Flyweight division, none other than probably the only guy that can get these kind of knockouts. Davis and Figueroa's big right hand on Joseph Benavidez in the first fight. I did like Henry Cejudo's knockout on uh, Wilson Haslo. Women's featherweight division, Nunez's right hand on Chris Cyborg. Bantamweight division, I'll probably have to say Nunez's high kick on Holly Holm. Flyweight division, Valentina Shevchenko's high kick on Jessica Andrade still to this day. Reminds me of an assassin at work. Lands the kill shot and walks away like nothing happened. It was another day at the office for Valentina. This for me is the most iconic knockout in women's MMA. And then the women's strawweight division, Jessica Andrade's right hook on Karolina Kovalkovich. Karolina known to have one of the best chins in the strawweight division. One of the toughest female fighters. And Jessica Andrade puts her down with one single shot. So great question, man. And then we go to Ijaz Ahmed. Hey, Weasel, who do you think is the artist, athlete, and fighter in each division? And do you think that Justin Gaethje would become the champion? Thanks, man. Keep up the good work. Thank you so much for the question, man. So the artist, athlete, and fighter... The artist of the heavyweight division is probably Surreal Gan. The athlete is Francis Ngannou, although he is also a fighter. And I'll say the fighter of the division is, of course, Derek Lewis. He embodies the spirit of a fighter more than probably anybody in the UFC. And then we go to light heavyweight division. The artist is probably Yuri Prohaska or Magomed Ankalaev. The athlete is none other than Dominic the Athlete Reyes. And the fighter is Thiago Santos. Jan Blachowicz is a mix of an artist and a fighter. The middleweight division. The artist is, of course, Israel Adesanya. Might also count Darren Till in there. The athlete is Uriah Hall, 100%. He embodies that spirit probably more than anybody else. And the fighter is Kelvin Gaslam and probably Marvin Vittori as well. The welterweight division. The artist is 100% Wonderboy Thompson. He's probably the most artistic fighter in the UFC. The athlete is Michelle Pereira. 
And for the fighter, it's pretty hard. You can say Vicente Luque, you can say Nate Diaz, you can say Jorge Masvidal. I lean equally to Vicente Luque and Nate Diaz. The artist of the lightweight division is Charles Oliveira. The athlete is Kevin Lee. And the fighter are Dustin Poirier and Justin Gaethje. I'd probably say equally. But there's a lot of fighters in this division that embody a fighter, probably more than any other division. I mean, when you got Charles Oliveira as a fighter, Dustin Poirier, Justin Gaethje, Michael Chandler, Conor McGregor, Tony Ferguson, Havatos Angels, Dan Hooker. This is the division that embodies the spirit of a fighter. It's probably the reason why we love it so much. The artist of the featherweight division is Ryan Hall. The athlete is Yair Rodriguez. Probably Zabit as well, but Zabit is inactive we don't know if he's ever coming back and the fighter is brian ortega i would say korean zombies there as well kelvin caters there as well shane burgos of course and max holloway but if i have to pick one i'd say brian ortega the artist of the bantamweight division i probably would have to say it's piotr Jan. but there isn't one fighter that just clearly embodies the artist the athlete is cody garbrandt Corey sanhagen and kyler phillips are there as well and the fighters Jolzy Aldo and Frank Yeager. The artist of the flyweight division is Eskar Eskarov. The athlete is Davis Figueredo. And the fighter is Brendan Moreno. Women's bantamweight division, the artist is Jermaine Duranemi. The athlete is Holly Holm. And the fighter is Arena Aldana. The artist of the flyweight division is Valentina Shevchenko. The athlete is Macy Barber. And the fighter is Jessica Andrade. The artist of the women's strawweight division is probably Yuan Yan Jacek. The athlete is Rose Namajunas. And the fighters... There's a couple, Joanna, Rose, and probably Zhang Wei Li, all three of them. And then we go to the next question by Bossy. Would you be interested in making a new series called Their Journey, where you go through a fighter's career, your subscribers vote for the fighter, you go from the first ever fight and break down their fights and how they change and develop throughout their career with each of these fights. This will require multiple episodes per fighter, as fitting in the whole career fight breakdown in one video would be too long, unless we were talking about CM Punk. That would be interesting, so it does remind me of something similar I have done. Not necessarily breaking down fighters, but I've done legacy videos on Michael Bisping, Uriah Faber, Dan Henderson when they retired, but that's more on their just career accomplishments and stuff like that i did something with conor mcgregor where i broke down every single fight not entirely of course because it would take too long but the most important moments in all of his fights beginning with his ufc debut all the way to the most recent at the time which i think was donald cerrone maybe it would be it would take a lot of commitment it would be my primary focus but as of right now i'm not looking to do that i have a lot on my plate maybe in the near future your next question says I've had my doubts of him as a president, but I think Dana is great for the UFC. Agreed. Yes. Dana's not only great for the UFC, he's great for the sport. Of course, there's always good and bad with anyone in power, right? Anyone who controls the world. But honestly, man, when I look at boxing, when I look at other combat sports, when I look at wrestling and see how corrupted those sports are, Dana is way better than probably any boxing promoter I've come to know of and keeps things correct for the fans. He gives us what we want for the most part. And he doesn't go the entire circus route like boxing has, right? He'll bring in CM Punk and James Tony, but he won't have them fight the best that he has as a pay-per-view main event or something like that, you know? For the most part, we're seeing the best fighters in the world compete against each other. The only thing going against it really are some of the negotiations behind the scene with the fighters and the pay and all that other stuff, but that's on the fighters, man. They gotta do something for themselves. They gotta stand up for themselves. And then the Weasel's top three Netflix shows, P.S. Sons of Anarchy is my favorite and definitely worth a watch if you haven't seen it. My three favorite Netflix shows, I'll have to say number one is the Peaky Blinders. 
probably the best show I've ever seen. Great script, interesting characters, entertaining plot, and honestly, I love the setting. For those who don't know, it's pretty much a crime show based on early 1900s England, specifically Birmingham after World War One. Absolutely amazing show, man. Number two, I'm probably gonna have to say The Last Kingdom. Based on Old War, back when the Vikings were fighting the Anglo-Saxons. I'm a huge fan of history. I love this kind of stuff, but it's a great story. Great amount of action. Interesting characters as well. One of the best shows that takes you back to war times. And also, it's kind of based on a true story. Not all the characters are real, but generally the way things happened, the birth of England and all that stuff, that's what the show kind of covers. And now the third best show I've watched is either The Haunting of Hill House or The Queen's Gambit. Even though they're very, very different shows. One's a horror, one's kind of like, I don't know, a drama around the game of chess. That's a very unique kind of show. They're both great in their own sense. I probably lean actually Haunting of Hill House because I am more of a horror fan and the story in that is great. The scare elements is very different than other shows, which I appreciate, but this one took a different kind of turn. The ending was pretty cringe, though, I'm not gonna lie. And then we go to Alex Gronowski. What can Eljo do to give himself the best shot in the Jan rematch? How does Shavdot match up with number 15 and number 10 at 170? And do you think Luke can stop Kiesa's takedown? So, what can Eljo do to give himself the best shot of beating Jan? Oh man, it's gonna be tough for him. So, kind of similar what he did in the first fight, but just... He's got to up that cardio, man, because if he doesn't have the cardio to outpace, outstrike, and attempt to drown Piotr Jan in sheer volume, he's going to lose. Like, there's no way around that. He doesn't have the power. He doesn't have the takedowns, as we learned. He's not fast enough. He's not tricky enough. The best chance he has is to be five rounds ready of just throwing shots at Piotr Jan and don't let him get going. He tried to do it in the first fight, and he was gassing out early. That is honestly his best chance. It's kind of interesting how he doesn't have power, doesn't have great cardio as well. That's very interesting coming from Aljamain Sterling because usually fighters either have power or they have crazy cardio. Aljo doesn't really have either. And that's going to be an issue to ever rule this division. And the Shakat Rachmanov versus number 15 and number 10. So how's he fight Muslim Salikov? Honestly, I can see that fight going either way. Him versus Sean Brady. I'm going to go with Shafkat, but that's a hard fight as well. Sean Brady is better than number 14. I think he beats Santiago Ponsonibio. I think he beats Li Jing Leong. I think he beats Damian Maya fairly easy. And I think he beats Jeff Neal as well. And then can Luke stop Kiesa's takedown? Yes, he can. Kiesa's not the best wrestler. He's very strong and big. Crazy to think about. He fought a lightweight and he's still considered a big welterweight. If he gets that body lock on you and tries to trip you out against the cage, that's where it's going to be pretty tough for Luke. So Luke is going to have to keep a moderate amount of distance between him and Kiesa and also be the pressuring fighter by threatening him with his power, constantly fainting at him and getting Kiesa to move back a bit. Kiesa is not a great striker. He has deceptive power, but he's not that fast. He's not that fluid. His technique is not all that good. Luke is not going to have a problem at all with Kiesa in the striking game. Therefore, he's going to have to shut down the wrestling by controlling the space. So yes, I do think if he approaches the fight correctly, he can defend the takedowns. But if he gets pushed up against the cage and Kiesa locks his hands, Luke is probably going to the ground. And then with the Felix, two scenarios. Number one, you are Max Holloway's coach and he's about to get ready to fight Volkanovski a third time. What do you teach him so that things will be different this time around? And number two, you are Whitaker's coach and how do you solve Adesanya and get your man to be the champion once more? So I actually answered the second question in my last podcast at great length. I'll just answer the first question and I'll move on to the next ones. So what can Max Holloway do a little bit different? I want to be honest here. I think Holloway fought Volkanovski almost the best way he could. The only thing is fine-tuning what he does because at that point, asking for anything different is going to cross the boundaries of him changing his style. When he fights Volkanovski or when he fought Dustin Poirier and many other fighters in the past, he still has that same weakness where if you collide with him, when he throws a shot, you meet him and throw your own with more power because Holloway doesn't have a great amount of power. 
he tends to always back up, and you kill off any kind of potential for combinations, with the possibility of you landing your big powerful shot just like Poirier did. That's still the biggest weakness going even to a third fight with Volkanovski. But Volkanovski does have a tendency of leaving himself open on the initial backstep away from an attack. Right, so if Holloway suddenly and quickly, has to be very quick, faints at Volkanovski, it makes it look like he's actually going to throw something heavy. He needs to get Volkanovski to move, and that's when Holloway capitalizes. This is the way he caught him with that high kick, but he didn't necessarily go to this that many more times in that fight. For the rest of it, he was kind of just looking to start his combinations and looking for an opening rather than forcing the opening with a big feint and capitalizing with a power shot. Because he did show he was able to knock down Volkanovski. Now at the same time here, Volkanovski when he goes on the attack, he likes to pump up that jab. He'll throw a calf kick afterward when you pull away expecting his right hand. Or he'll throw a long straight right if he feels you're in the distance for it. But if you're backpedaling, he'll attack with the left hook off of his jab. What does this all mean? He attacks heavy after pumping out the jabs. If Max Holloway can read the jabs a little bit better, backstep maybe one time, move away just one time to feel out and see what Volkanovski is going to attack with. There are many opportunities to counters in that brief moment there. Countering Volkanovski is not the easiest thing to do, which is why you have to give Max a lot of credit for finding that uppercut in that first round. But you're going to have to find those openings, man. Right? When you're fighting someone like Volkanovski, he's the cream of the crop. He's the best guy in that division. This is the way you're going to have to tag him. Very brief, small openings that Max is going to have to explode on. And then with the Caleb Schmidt. Favorite fighters who are awesome yet terrible at the same discipline. For an example, Dominic Cruz has great footwork and ring craft, but terrible punching form. Vicente Luque has great punching form, but very slow feet. I'll have to say probably Jorge Masvidal. He has great kickboxing offense. Punching form is pretty good. His power is good. His timing's excellent. And his mix-ups are extremely tricky. But at the same time, his defense is a lot more one-dimensional. As multi-dimensional his offense is with his strikes, his defense is a lot more one-dimensional. And at times, he's a little bit too comfortable with his defense. We don't tend to see him be comfortable with his offense. This is why you see him try to parry counter with left hooks when Kamar Usman's throwing a jab and a right straight. You don't do it to a right straight, you do it to a jab. Or against Nate Diaz, he's stuck on the defense and looked to just move with the punches. And ultimately, he was getting caught by the later strings of those combos. And then we go to Sebastian Chantry, who has the best jab in each division. And how's your training going? Any matches planned? Have a good day, mate. Greetings from Sweden. Thank you so much, man. Shout out to Sweden. A heavyweight is Surreal Gone. Light heavyweight, I'll probably have to say is Anthony Smith. Middleweight. Man, there's a lot of good jabbers on this one. I would say Whitaker uses it more than everybody else. Therefore, we see it more. So, I'd probably say Whitaker. Welterweight, Kamar Usman, 100%. Lightweight, it's harder to pick either Charles Oliveira or Rafa Dos Anjos. They use it in diff they use it differently, but they're both very effective with it. Oliveira has that long stretch snappy jab, but... Half of those angels lunges in there with it and looks for combinations. Completely different kind of jabs for different reasons. Featherweight division, I probably have to say Max Holloway. Although Calvin Cater has a very good jab. Shane Burgos has an excellent jab. Bantamweight division, raw font for sure, man. The flyweight division, definitely Brennan Moreno. Women's bantamweight division, I'll probably say Jermaine Duranami. Women's, women's flyweight division is Valentina Shevchenko. Women's strawweight division, Ioana Janjacek. And how's my training going? I haven't been training too much, to be honest, as of late. Just doing stuff here and there. Nothing extensive. And then we go to Paul Youngblood. Who wins this MMA fight? The Weasel versus Valentina Shevchenko. No matter where or how the fight goes, the Weasel wins. But I'm actually kind of curious. How old is Valentina? She's 33 years old. That's actually pretty crazy. Oh, well, it doesn't change anything. Might be a harder fight. She's more experienced. 
Then we go to Simon Loining, the MMA world outside the UFC. Who's your favorite fighter in other promotions? One, Bellator, Ryzen, KSW, and others. What is your prediction of Poirier versus McGregor? Three, big fan from Norway. How do you guys from Europe, man? So I see my terrible sleeping schedules working for you guys. My favorite fighter probably outside the UFC is Mohamed Khalidov. He's a little bit more old school, a bit older, but man, he's still doing the thing. He was regarded as one of the best middleweights on the planet for years. The guy went without a loss for so long. He had an 18-fight undefeated streak. And then after losing to Jorge Santiago, he went on another 15-fight undefeated streak. But still to this day, he has never lost in the middleweight division at KSW. Ever. All of his losses were in another weight class. And I highly recommend you guys check out his latest knockout. He avenges loss to Scott Ashcomb with a highlight reel 30-second flying switch kick to the face knockout. He only has four decision wins out of his 35 wins. 15 knockouts, 16 submissions. Yeah, definitely my favorite fighter outside the UFC for a long time. And who do I pick in Poirier versus McGregor? I lean McGregor, man, but it's not confident at all. It's hard to be reasonably confident in that kind of fight, one way or the other. Poirier can do many things. McGregor can show up different. Anything could really happen in that fight. And then with the Ilias... Shanavazi, which style of kicks do you think is the most effective in MMA? More damaging and simple Muay Thai kicks or more tricky and off-guarding Taekwondo kicks? Personally, I lean more Muay Thai kick because it slows the opponent down in later rounds and is easier to set up. Also, it hardly telegraphs and it requires less energy when I implement it during sparring. However, I think if you master spinning kicks, then you're able to telegraph them less like high-level fighters in the UFC. I love your breakdown videos. Keep up the good work. Thank you so much, man. Yeah, entirely different kicks. Now, what I will say is, if you don't have a background in traditional martial arts, whether it be Taekwondo or other versions of karate, don't go for the spinning stuff. Don't go for the flashiness. The simpler Muay Thai style kicks are generally going to be better as they are the basics of MMA. If you think of MMA as like a martial art, it's not a martial art. But if you simplify it to that, the Muay Thai style kicks are like the basics of MMA. Just like boxing is part of it as well. Double X, single X, some trips against the cage. Slow moving Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu moves as well. Those are like your basics of MMA. You want to learn the Muay Thai kicks and perfect those as much as possible before going on to the spinning stuff. Because you're going to need the dexterity. You're going to need the flexibility. You're going to need the power that you could generate from the Muay Thai style kicks and bring that into the spinning stuff. Because at that point, all you got to learn is the technique. You don't need to learn all the other stuff because when you're learning flashy kicks, your fundamentals are going to be poor. Just like in boxing, right? They say Roy Jones Jr. for an example. Roy Jones Jr. is one of the greatest boxers of all time, right? But he's the perfect example of a boxer who did not rely on the fundamentals. His fundamentals were pretty poor. He rarely used a jab. He will start exchanges with a leaping left hook and use his speed as his offense and his defense, not necessarily the technique and the fundamentals. That is why you saw Roy Jones Jr., fall harder than most boxers in boxing history. When he got a little bit older, his speed went away. When his speed went away, his foundation went out the window as well. That is why you're able to see Bernard Hopkins, who was a former opponent of his, he went into his 40s and 50s as a professional boxer and did very well for his age. Why did Bernard Hopkins do better than him? Because Hopkins' foundation was based on the fundamentals. That is why. You're able to go farther in the sport if you know the fundamentals. And here's the thing, man. When you learn the flashy stuff, spinning kicks and all that, you don't want to learn the fundamentals at that point. You want the exciting stuff. You want the highlight reel knockouts. You want Joaquin Buckley spinning back face to the face kind of knockouts. You don't want the boring stuff, right? And because fundamentals are probably the most effective thing in all combat sports, that is why the Muay Thai kicks are going to be way more effective than the spinning stuff. The spinning stuff are going to be used after learning the Muay Thai kicks. But here's the thing, though. If you bring in a Muay Thai fighter, 
and a Taekwondo fighter into MMA. They have their base, they came from a different sport, so they know what they know. The kicks are very different. I still say that Muay Thai kicks are going to be more effective, but the Taekwondo kicks can also be extremely effective as well, depending on how you use them, depending on how you set them up. But you're not going to use those kind of kicks as many times as you're going to throw Muay Thai kicks. Like you said, they cost a little bit too much energy, and they can be highly telegraphed if you constantly go, if you constantly go to them. That's why you used to see R. Rodriguez, for an example, with so many of his kicks in the past. Now what do you see from him in some of his more recent fights? Muay Thai kicks, standing his ground, stepping into them, Ranas to the body, Ranas to the legs, kind of kicks you don't throw in Taekwondo. But he's finding the Taekwondo kicks in mere moments, trying to catch the guy off guard. So you can actually kind of condition your opponent with the usual fundamental Muay Thai kicks and trick him to fall into a Taekwondo spinning heel kick to the face, which generally is going to have a little bit more power. Therefore, always, Muay Thai kicks have to be used more than Taekwondo kicks. That's just how it's going to go. But what I will say is, there are Taekwondo kicks that are extremely effective and very much underused in MMA. Side kick to be more specific. People are throwing it to the legs, but to the head and to the body, that's got to be used way more than it is today, man. I see that as one of the biggest strikes to be implemented in MMA in the future. You will be shocked how many different variations of side kicks you can land on a single target to the body and to the head a lot of feints and fakes and a psychic doesn't necessarily require that much energy to throw it and the surprising nature of it makes it a very capable kick of knocking out the opponent as well i think what to ned's mma podcast how does kevin lee do against the top 15 of welterweight now that he's fully committed no he does not do that well i don't buy this whole excuse anymore kevin lee 2.0 was supposed to be a thing like three times already i don't believe a fourth time man especially at welterweight he's way too small there he does not have the cardio there with a tony buttface fantasy matchup time nick diaz versus nate diaz today nate diaz wins for sure logan paul versus jake paul jake paul for sure francis Ngannou versus prime fedor Ngannou. i don't see fedor taking it to the ground if he's not going to take it to the ground fedor is going to blast him into another world even as fast as fedor is and how great of a chin as he used to have his chin is not good enough Conor McGregor versus Nate Diaz in the trilogy. I'm going to go with Conor McGregor, but I do expect it probably being a tougher fight than the second one. Rocky Marciano versus Mike Tyson. Got to go with Mike Tyson for sure. Completely different era, different kind of athlete. Mike is much bigger than him. But even still, Rocky's toughness and his chin combined with his power and his ability to go 15 rounds and only build on his output makes it for a very interesting fight, man. If Rocky connects one time with that big right overhand, Tyson would probably go out. But I think Rocky could take a few from Tyson. And then Fury versus Ali. I'll say Fury 100%. I'll even go as far to say that I don't think any boxer in history could beat Tyson Fury. The keep of the grind, you legend. Thank you so much, man. They're going to Mohamed Absusura. Do you think Sean O'Malley has the skills and durability to hang with the top of the bantamweight division? I don't think so, but the problem is I can't say for certain because I still don't know how good his wrestling defense is. He's been fighting strikers for the most part. I need to see him fight a wrestler because if Piotr Jan and Aljamain Sterling take him to the ground, then the hype was not real. One simple weakness that they could have tested this whole time could have been prevented. And honestly, he gets injured all the time, so... With the right matchups, strikers for the most part, he would beat most of them. But if they mix up takedowns on him, that's where it's going to be an issue. And he cannot hang, I think, with most of the well-rounded fighters. The fact that he does get injured will take years off of his career. So ultimately, I'll say no, he's probably not going to hang with the top of the division. Then what is Suhaibi? How many Henry Cejudos would beat an unranked heavyweight like Maurice Green? I'll say two of them. I think two Cejudos can probably beat any heavyweight besides maybe Francis Ngannou. It'll take probably three Cejudos. Then with Arik Rayford. How do you think Connor's chin will hold up against guys like Dustin Gaethje, Chandler, and so on, being that he somewhat relies on it? 
So I think Connor's chin is actually pretty good. He's never gotten knocked out with one big punch. He's taken some big blows in his career. And he did get knocked out by uh, Dustin Poirier. But it took a huge barrage of shots to put him out. The issue with this is after a knockout of Dustin Poirier, his chin is not going to get better. His chin is going to be weaker after that fight. So at this point... Does his chin hold up against Dustin? I think it can. But against Gaethje and Chandler, he gets hit one time by those two guys and he might actually go down. So no, I don't think his chin is good enough to take Gaethje and Chandler shots, but I think he could take a few from Dustin. I think he could take some from Oliveira. I think he could definitely take some from Dariush. Definitely take some from Tony Ferguson, Havados Angels, Dan Hooker. Pretty much every guy in the division besides Justin and Michael Chandler. Then your next question, also you're stuck on the island with Dana White. The way off is to work a minimum wage job and negotiate a way onto his yacht after years of saving money or enter the fighting pits against the top 10 heavyweight goats. So what you're saying here is um, in this fighting pit, even if I lose, I got to keep going. Hey, I know a thing or two about business. I'll go the negotiation route. I'll try to sweet talk my way onto a yacht. And what do I even get if I beat the top 10 heavyweights? Bragging rights? Like what do I get out of that? It's just pain, and then at the end of it, I get a pat on the back for doing it. Getting on the yacht with Dana and saving money, there's a little bit more opportunity out of that. And then with a 4J8, when I'm on the toilet, I keep wiping and wiping, but the toilet paper never comes back clean. Okay, uh, probably means he didn't pass everything. Anyway, my question is, do you think TJ will rise back to the top, or has his break been too long, or has the division passed him up? Yet another question about excrement. So TJ Dillashaw possibly can, yes, he does have the skills to absolutely claim that belt again. Piotr Jan is his biggest test. Corey's hand is going to be a tough one as well. Honestly, most of the other fighters, I do see him beating. It's just really Corey Sanhagen and Piotr Jan that are the difficult matchups for him. Therefore, no, I don't think the division has passed him up. Honestly, when he was the champ, he seemed ahead of his time. He was doing things that still fighters today aren't even doing. And he's one of the only fighters in the division that mixes up takedowns with his strikes. That alone is a very valuable asset. If you guys are wondering what I meant about the excrement joke, TJ Dolezal likes to knock out his training partners. Then we go to another question by Mohamed Absasura. Looks like a lot of people like your questions. Does Steven Thompson have the best chance at beating Usman in the welterweight division given his unique style he could his ability to control distance on Usman who doesn't have the best footwork and that Thompson is not gonna be that threatened by Usman striking for the most part if he starts respecting Usman's power then I could see Wonderboy having a difficult time because if he respects the power he's gonna back up the threat of the power is gonna cause him to back up and therefore Usman is gonna be able to drive a takedown into the cage and do his magic if he doesn't respect the power that much and tries to control the distance as much as possible by throwing constant attacks in front of Usman's face, sidekicks, long punches, fainting constantly. If he just keeps a busy output at a distance, Usman might get caught by something big, slapping high kicks that he just does not see coming. Also, the sidekicks to the body are going to be a great weapon for him as Usman likes to keep a very squared stance to the opponent. That's excellent for Wonderboy Thompson. So yes, he absolutely has a style that probably could be the best chance at beating Usman. In terms of fighting Usman at his strengths and competing by challenging him, it's still Colby Covington. Then would a Ted Bradby. Who do you think are the best referees in the sport, say top five? Now, every ref has done a bad job here and there, and they've all done a good job here and there. But what I will say is the gold standard today is Jason Herzog. The way he's able to stay focused in there and be very aware of what's going on at most times is something that most refs today do not do. And he sees, and he seems to be genuinely concerned for the fighters as a ref should. Another great ref is Mark Goddard. He's extremely assertive and I like that style of his. Doesn't make too many mistakes, but he has made some as of lately. 
Mike Beltron is an excellent referee. Also very assertive. They take that Big John McCarthy style. Big John was pretty good back in his day. I mean, he was a ref for so long, so of course he's had many mess-ups, but he's also had extremely good calls as well. And I'll also say Herb Dean, but as of late, he hasn't done the best job. But we can't forget what he did in his prime. Then we go to Shane Stroud. What do you think of that fat jiu-jitsu guy trying to snap the UFC's fighter's elbow from the underhook position? I can't stop thinking about how terrible it was. Or you're talking about Orlando Sanchez, the high-level Brazilian jiu-jitsu artist who actually competes. And man, this just reminds me of all the terrible training partners that you have to experience so you know that you have to avoid them. I mean, what can you say? The guy's a slime ball for that. So obviously Sanchez is a strong, big guy, right? He's very heavy. And he quickly cranked on that overhook so fast. You know he just wanted to get that in there. Purposely try to injure Sean Strickland. That was the most disgusting thing about it. Sanchez got lucky that Sean Strickland didn't turn it into a real fight. I mean, he warned him. He's like, I could turn this MMA very quickly. And we all know Orlando Sanchez would not like that. It's a different situation than when John Jones did it to Glover Teixeira because they were fighting each other, right? This is just training. Sean Strickland has probably paid Orlando Sanchez to be there. You don't try to hurt the fighter, right? You actually have to lean more into get beat up by the fighter rather than beat them up, you know? If you lean a certain way, whether you're thinking about, do I hurt him a little? Do I push a little bit more and try to actually hurt this guy? Or do I just kind of let him do what he needs to do to me just to feel this out a little bit more? Good training partners are generally going to lean to the latter. They're not going to push it too hard because they understand this training camp is for the fighter. If they need to try things on me, I'll let them try a little bit and I won't try to hurt this guy, you know? This is why Justin Gaethje has been universally known to be one of the best training partners. Because he will literally let you beat him up in training to try things out. When you got guys trying to hurt you, like Orlando Sanchez, those are the kind of guys you want to avoid. Now, obviously, you want training partners to push you, right? Especially high-level Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu artists like Orlando Sanchez trying to get Sean Strickland's BJJ ready for his next fight. But you're already a higher level than Sean Strickland. You're a better grappler than Sean Strickland is. So why do you have to go so hard? Why do you have to try to hurt him? You can let him get you in some bad positions and show him how you get out of those. All we know is Sanchez is not going to be in a lot of guys' training camps from now on. They're going to Sakib Shah. Best body kickers in the UFC right now. My picks are Blahovich, Masvidal, and Barboza. I actually agree with you almost entirely right there. Yara Rodriguez is a good body kicker as well. But those three are probably the best body kickers. Barboza is probably the best kicker overall. He just does everything almost perfect. Masvidal is a very good kicker. And Blahovich's power that he generates in those kicks to the body. I mean, look what he did Dominic Reyes. Couple kicks in there and you thought Dominic Reyes was changing colors. Like he was a chameleon or something. I think with Alberto Amoruso, what's the biggest animal Ngannou can defend himself from bare hands? Also, do you think Poirier can rise up to welterweight? And who do you think he could beat among the top-ranked fighters of that division? So the biggest animal Ngannou can defend himself from. Okay, so let's set some boundaries here. He cannot fight a gorilla. He cannot fight a bear. Or at least a brown bear. He might be able to fight a black bear, maybe? He'd probably strangle an ostrich. Definitely not fighting a hippo. Definitely not fighting a bison. He could probably knock out a wolf. Let's think of some cats. So he could probably beat a cheetah. Cheetahs aren't that strong. They're kind of small. They're very fast and they go for your neck. But if Ngannou plays his hand right, he could put potentially defend himself from a cheetah could he defend himself against a tiger how big are tigers no he's not fighting a tiger never mind tigers are like 10 feet long what the heck and they're like 500 pounds could he beat a cougar or a jaguar those are probably the limit for him i don't think he can actually do it they're pretty big seven feet long about the cougar is a little bit bigger than the jaguar but i know the jaguar is stronger than the cougar i mean i think they have the strongest bite force out of any cat where they can literally shatter a turtle shell and gano's obviously much bigger than they are but they might be stronger than him they go for the neck one bite from either of them and it's probably over yeah Nganu's not going to deal with them but I think that's like the lower end boundary of what Nganu can possibly go up against so the cheetah is probably the biggest cat that Nganu can beat 
In terms of primates, maybe a chimpanzee. Chimps are roughly like one and a half times stronger than a normal human. Chimps are also much, much smaller. Average height being about four and a quarter feet, weighing a hundred pounds. That's probably the that's probably the most equal fight for Francis Ngannou. But Ngannou is not going to be an orangutan who are roughly seven times stronger than a normal person, and definitely not beating a gorilla who can get up to ten times stronger than a normal person. Now, can Pori rise up to welterweight? Yes, but I don't think he's going to be that successful. He doesn't have the power that makes a difference. His BJJ is pretty good, but there's a lot of strong wrestlers, and they're probably going to shut all of that down on him. I mean, you got Gilbert Burns, who completely eclipses Pori's BJJ. Lightweight is the division for him. He should not be going up to welterweight unless he's participating in some money fights. But let's see, among the top ranks, who could he beat? He's not beating Usman. He's not beating Covington. I don't think he beats Burns. Burns' chin being a liability is the only chance Dustin has in that fight. He's not going to beat Leon. He does not beat Wonderboy. And I don't think he beats Luke. Luke is way too powerful, way too big and durable. He could probably beat Kiesa. He'd be a tough fight for Jorge. He'd be difficult for Magni. He'd be difficult for Bilal, Jeff Neal, Demi Mai. So yeah, the cutoff is Vicente Luque. He beats nobody from Vicente Luque up. Under Vicente Luque from Kiesa all the way down to Muslim Salikov, he's very competitive there. So the best guy he can beat in the top 15 is number 6, Michael Chiesa. And then we go to Jose Flores. Thoughts on 2021 being the year of rematches. We got Dustin Connor 2 and 3, Ngannou Stipe 2, possibly Ngannou Lewis 2, we'll see. Izzy Vittori 2, Izzy Whitaker 2, Esparza Rose 2, Moreno Eskarov 2, Aljo Yan 2, Usman Mazadal and Colby all rematches. Don't forget, we also just had Moreno and Figueredo. I love the rematches. I mean, who doesn't like seeing a rematch? Two fighters come out of a fight making adjustments to face each other yet again. It makes 2021 a distinctive year, you know? We could look at this year as the year of the rematches. And then we're going to Kosovan legend. What does Colby have to do in the rematch against Usman to win? Keep up the good content. Thank you so much, man. I cannot stress this enough. Colby has to stop pulling back in a straight line. Kamar Usman's best punches come down in a very straight line, the jab and the right cross. His looping punches are telegraphed. So if Colby wants to get off the straight line, he should easily see those looping punches coming if they do try to intercept him. He could attempt to wrestle there as well and just try to be as technically proficient as possible in the striking, not looking for the knockout, not looking to hurt Kamar Usman, but make him pay for every strike he throws and put the pressure on him, outpace him. Of course, the whole Colby Covington style, drown the opponent in volume. They are in opposite stances, so when Colby sees Kamara move forward, he knows that Kamara is going to take the outside foot. Therefore, it gives Colby even more room to slip on the outside of the punch and then chase down Kamaro's error. Whenever Kamaro misses that big punch and he has to pivot in order to get back in his stance and face the opponent, he kind of stumbles over his feet a bit. And that's where Colby, being the better athlete, at least he looks like it, pivot before Usman does and make him pay for it. Punish those big shots. He's going to have to stay a little bit closer to Usman. He cannot be too far away. So closer boxing range is where Colby's going to want to stay at. Or he wants to stay in far kicking range and use some of those unorthodox kicks a lot of powerful body and head kicks from that distance. So he gets Usman to move forward. After he throws one of those big kicks, Usman is going to look to press behind that and land that big right hand of his. From there, Colby knows what to do. Then we go to Boomik Joshi. Design a fighter who will lose to anyone by having the worst of everything. Like worst takedowns, worst takedown defense, worst chin, right hand, left hand, worst kicks, reach, height disadvantage, and striking defense, etc. So the opposite of the perfect fighter, we're going to build the worst fighter possible. Alright, so we're not going to use CM Punk at all because we could just name him as the fighter. But worst takedowns, off the top of my head, I'll probably say Dan Hardy. We'll give him Carl's kind of takedown defense. We'll give him an Alistair Overeem chin. Right hand Damian Maya. Left hand Ben Askren. Dan Henderson kicks. Artem Lobov reach. John Lineker height disadvantage. Chuck Liddell striking defense. And a Vanderlei Silva plotting stance. 
There you go. The worst fighter that would never beat anybody ever. And that is the end of the podcast, guys. So I hope you guys enjoyed the episode. If you did, make sure to like, make sure to subscribe to my YouTube channel if you listen to the audio version of this. Great questions this week. I can't wait for the next one. And again, if you guys want any extra podcasts, make sure to check out tomorrow for the next extra episode.